You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, seeks to improve the quality of healthcare in America. We want to make sure healthcare is better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, we measure their performance, and highlight those who do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or you have any comments or concerns, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, on this episode, we look into the progress being made in bridging the gaps in health equity on the state level. And after that, we hear from the head of NCQA's external relations team with exciting details on our upcoming Health Innovation Summit and why you should run, not walk, and register today. First up, we provide a fascinating look at one U.S. state's efforts to develop changes that will indelibly improve health equity for their citizens. There are so many ways in which health equity initiatives can be implemented on the state level, and it doesn't have to start with some kind of legislation. In this interview, Christine Toppy, Assistant Vice President for State Affairs at NCQA, moderates a discussion with state Medicaid quality leaders from Louisiana. They discuss a new report funded by the California Healthcare Foundation. The paper follows an earlier one, came out last year, as Christine will explain, with both reports geared to provide new tools for states in improving health equity. Specifically, this discussion here uh, focuses on improving Medicaid-based managed care. I'll include a link to the updated paper in our episode description. Just a note that the paper refers to a number of domains. You'll hear them use the word domain. This is the term for the conceptual topics considered in the report. Within each domain, there's a number of measures that were recommended in helping track and improve health equity. So Christine's guests here in the interview are Colinda Parker, Medicaid Deputy Director for the Louisiana Department of Health, and Amanda Dumas, Chief Medicaid Officer for the Louisiana Department of Health. Christine often conducts informative and insightful webinars for NCQA on all aspects of our state affairs efforts. The original in-depth co-interview here was conducted more like a long-form webinar, which is longer and more detailed than our usual podcast interviews. So we offer to you here both an edited version and the full version of the interview, which will be offered separately. Here's how it goes. What you're about to hear has been edited down for time considerations. But for those of you interested in hearing more detail on both the updated NCQA report and Louisiana's own actions in improving health equity, I'm simultaneously releasing both this podcast episode alongside a bonus episode, which contains the entire interview. As always, this material is free for you to download, courtesy of NCQA. So here, first up, we hear from guests Kalinda Parker, followed by Amanda Dumas. Here's Christine Toppy to start us off. Over the last year, NCQA, in partnership with the California Healthcare Foundation, has been leading a program to advance 
equity-focused quality measurement in Medicaid. In December of 2021, we released a white paper evaluating Medicaid's use of quality measurement to achieve equity goals, which is available on NCQA's website. The first report really focused on the current state of measurement. In this month's report, we release our proposal for the future state, an equity-focused measurement framework for accountability in Medicaid. The framework is intended to facilitate accountability and contracting for managed care organizations, putting equity at the forefront of what we expect in terms of quality and outcomes. So in reviewing the measure framework, for which is built for Medicaid, but I think the vision is that it would be used uh, and applied, uh, evolved to apply beyond Medicaid, um, how did the six domains um, and the measures that were selected, how did those resonate uh, with you in, in, in the context of kind of your experience in Louisiana, you know, where you know the, the challenges are with your populations? Definitely. So the six domains resonated very well and are actually familiar to me. Um, social interventions, access to high quality clinical care, experience of care, structures of care, and the overall well-being are areas in which Louisiana Medicaid has incorporated into its quality program. And these domains and measures do align with the Louisiana Department of Health straight state priorities. So the Louisiana Medicaid quality strategy does identify strategies to address health equity, evaluate health disparities. I'm really pleased to say that Louisiana Medicaid is currently reporting on all measures in the access to care, high quality clinical care domains, and also two measures in the experience of care domain. The overall well-being domain includes measures that the Louisiana Medicaid may have access to. Uh, the LDH Office of Public Health does administer and reports on the Briffis data. Um, again, this is data that we may be able to collaborate with our Office of Public Health partners to access. And although we have identified challenges with collecting race ethnicity data in Medicaid, the two measures in the structures of, of care domain are definitely important and measures that we are interested in implementing. Um, again, furthermore, the Louisiana Medicaid 3.0 MCO contracts will require that all plans use a standardized health needs assessment tool, which will capture additional demographic data. My own perspective is probably a bit of a higher view um, in that, you know, when I was thinking of this, I was Really impressed to see the equitable structure of care. And I know we might dive into that a little deeper later. But as Glenda was saying, I think a lot of this was very familiar and maybe had been restructured or reframed in a way to create this overall well being model, um, especially around access and high quality care. I think the structure of care is going to be really important to acknowledge here as, as bold and perhaps new, but still young. I think it's going to evolve over time to be maybe more informative than it's currently structured, as well as experiences of care. I think that this is especially important to have the voices of the patients in here. And I really appreciate that because I think it's been harder to capture and certainly something that is often um, discounted by clinicians or other people in healthcare uh, um, 
infrastructure. So I'm really excited to see that. Um, and again, as we dive deeper, you know, we can get into the nitty gritty there, but overall, I think it's a, it's a nice framework. I think it does lend itself to capturing more and more over the years as we find better ways of capturing these domains. That's great. And, and it sounds like, um, based on what Kalinda you described in terms of existing, um, expectations that, that it really does, um, uh, reinforce and align with your existing priorities, which is, um, I think, uh, important for states to hear in terms of the lift, right? What does it mean for organizations to, um, to report measures, uh, and kind of, if they don't already have certain facets of what's required to, to implement stratified measures, you know, what, you know, that it's, they're part of the way they're potentially, you know, if they're already reporting, um, some of these, which are heatest measures, not all of them are obviously heatest measures. Um, were there anything, were, were there any parts of the domains or the measures that were, um, surprise, surprises to you? I would say I wasn't surprised per se, but I appreciated the concept of all of the all of the domains overlapping um, for the overall well-being of the enrollee, as well as assure, ensuring like success across all of the domains. And this is illustrated throughout and outlined in the framework. So again, I wasn't surprised, but I appreciated that overlap in, in, in demonstrating how all of the different domains can work together for the overall well-being of the enrollee. Yeah, I would agree that I think the domains themselves are really good, and I think they cover every everything we're interested in. Um, I do think that the fact that equitable social interventions, that, that domain relies solely on clinical or EHR data is going to be an issue because that's something that not all states have access to. Mm-hmm. And even if you do have access to it, it can be um, pretty unreliable. It, it's a very difficult measure to get at. You know, was there follow-up on a referral to an organization that supports housing or food insecurity? How do you actually find that? How do you see, you might be able to code that there was a positive screen, but if you're not being reimbursed for that screening, is there necessarily that reliability of that claim? Um, that's just one example. Even if you do the chart review and you find that the screening was done and it was positive, how can you guarantee that the referral was done? Maybe a, a sheet was handed to the family or maybe a phone call was made. Maybe some places, some, some um, patients rely on another organization already. And so the physician or the clinician doesn't have to make that step. They're just verifying that that connection is already there. So again, I think that there's so much nuance in addressing these social determinants and just the factors around poverty itself. It's so incredibly nuanced and difficult that that's always going to be a challenge. And I I think that in this case, I do wonder, I'm sure this conversation has been had, but do we have to lean on the clinician's notes or can we lean on the MCOs to do more in guaranteeing that those screenings have happened? Because again, many clinics that are actually doing a lot of this hard work and doing the screening don't have a social worker that they're employed or they don't have a full-time social worker. They don't have a way to have any support during that 15 minute visit to address the needs that they've screened positive for. However, if the MCO is able to do some of the screening and referral from their end, can they, or has that been done? Or can we confirm that that connection has been made rather than taking up that clinical time where the parent really wants to talk about failure to thrive or the formula or the spitting up or the rash. Um, Knowing that all these things are so incredibly interrelated 
do we have to rely on that clinician all the time? Or can we start to look at other measures that should be happening at the MCO level? Yeah, that's a fast, that's a great point. Really relevant. Um, certainly a theme that has been happening in all the conversations NCQA has been having with stakeholders about health equity and about, about kind of when those um, opportunities arise, who has kind of ownership of the, of the person and uh, for, uh, you know, at the, at any given point in time for whether it's the referral or the execution of the referral and the relationship between managed care organizations, community-based organizations, uh, health information exchanges, all these, all these parts of the, the, the health delivery system, if you will, not just healthcare, um, you know, where, where are those data sitting, where might they sit, uh, and what opportunity do we have to um, increase the connectivity between the players so that, the, so that there can be that strong accountability and, um, and frankly, you know, a real understanding of did the person get the thing that they needed to be to that, you know, that was intended. So thank you for that. Um, so if we, uh, if we might pivot then to that equitable structure of care point, um, so that domain includes measures that assess an organization's culture and system of care for meeting the needs of individuals from diverse backgrounds and lived experiences. Um, we limited the number of measures in this domain at this time um, and see this as an area for future development. So um, as you're thinking about the role of managed care organizations um, now and in the future, how do you think uh, organizational structures such as plan capacity and systems and processes, like how do you think about those and uh, what influence might they have on care and, and care quality and how might we kind of help to evolve that? Plan capacity systems and processes have great influence on the care and care quality of the enrollee and specifically in Medicaid. One of the key strategies, as I stated before, in which Louisiana has implemented or is implemented is the new MCO 3.0 contract. So by leveraging these contracts uh, to include uh, language to address uh, and prioritize health equity was really, really key. So not only did we include language to address health equity, but health disparities and social determinants of health, as well as require the MCOs to, de to demonstrate more meaningful commitments to health equity. So that again, that was one key lever that we used. For example, um, in the MCO contract, this is our new contracts uh, that we recently uh, signed off on, um, defines health equity. It also requires the MCOs to employ a health equity administrator at, at a very high executive level. It incorporates you know, health equity into population health strategies. Um, and also we created a separate health equity section that has clear provisions outlined to ensure that there is an effort to achieve health equity. Um, what Clinda's saying, I would just maybe emphasize our new contracts have really taken a lot of this into account. And I think that there were a lot of lessons learned from previous years in what we might see in MCO's potential and what they 
will uh, say are their strengths. And yet the accountability for us to actually see it in practice, especially around these types of measures. So a lot of that was taken into the new contracts and really thought about carefully in terms of, well, how do we need to really lay this out to make sure our values and priorities are going to be reflected and that the NCOs will be held accountable? Because again, there's really varying degrees of how this actually plays out. And so hopefully going forward, we'll have better measures to actually keep track of that. My question, which I think is is uh, is something that a lot of states are kind of grappling with, is you know what is the kind of realistic place where these healthcare organizations are now, and kind of how how far are they on the journey for to where you would like them to be? Um, and obviously, this um, framework provides you, um, I think, a, a narrative to help explain the accountability that you might apply, and I think are applying to your plans. Um, you know, what do you have a sense of, based on what you've described as kind of what they've been able to do to date and where you'd like them to be about kind of what that journey looks like for, for the state and for the plans? Well, I can say starting with measurement 2021, that was our first year that we're requiring our MCOs to stratify measures. Okay. So we have identified several measures, again, that are, are in the the six domains that NCQA has outlined in the framework, not only are they required to report, but they're also required to stratify. Furthermore, to hold or to have more accountability or to hold the MCOs more accountable, we do tie a withhold, not only to ours, to some of our quality measures, we have 11 incentivized measures, but also to health equity starting with this new contract. So again, we wanted to ensure that there were uh, meaningful commitments by the MCOs to address health equity. And what better way to do it is through quality measurement, reporting, transparency, having that information, that data publicized on our quality dashboard for the state of of Louisiana, as well as tying quality withholds to not only the the quality measures, but health equity as well. So that's one of the new strategies, again, that we have outlined in our MCO contracts that had not been there before. Not only do we want to see your health equity action plan, how you intend on um, meeting successful or being successful in health equity or achieving health equity, but but we're also um, holding them accountable by placing that withhold on health equity as well as quality metrics and reporting. That's super helpful. I'm sure our listeners will be very interested to uh, to um, to hear that, and and you may have some folks giving you guys a ring. Uh, we know lots of states are grappling with um, how best to approach um, all of this work, uh, and states are in a you know an array of uh, places in terms of that journey. So um, the details I think are really important, and that's one of the things we we like to be able to share with our listeners is is how states that are, you know, um, moving down the path are, are doing it and, and the lessons they've learned along the way. So appreciate that detail. Um, Amanda, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Sure. I think in terms of talking about structures of care, when I was mentioning before that I'd like to see how this evolves, I'm wondering if in future we'll be able to find a way to look at how the systems that, that put like that, um, I guess, organize and facilitate care, those big healthcare organizations that employ so many physicians and other clinicians are really able to uh, profit off the work of these clinicians and these quality measures. 
Whereas the incentive, they're not really trickling down to those providers and how that tends to affect that structure of care. Because you do see that's really the model that a lot of healthcare has gone towards now. You have a lot of private practices still maybe doing primary care. And yet primary care is not always valued highly in the larger healthcare systems mm-hmm. that then will you know, engage with MCOs in different sort of uh, contracts to get money back. Um, by meeting certain measures, and yet they ask the physicians to then click boxes in Epic or whatever their EHR is, that they've done certain things, but that doesn't always then reward those clinicians for doing the work. And again, is that healthcare system then going back and taking that money to hire a social worker or a care coordinator or working with the MCOs around all these social drivers of health, the social determinants of health that are leading to poor outcomes amongst people living in poverty to begin with? Because again, I think we see this necessary but frustrating pattern where we capture patients coming from very difficult circumstances when they come to care. And so we want to use that opportunity to identify their needs. And then we either punish or reward those clinicians for meeting the needs based on some of these measures. And I just feel like the the system has really never evolved. Medicaid included has never evolved to really fight poverty. We're here to respond. You know, it was built as a claim system to pay back services that were delivered. So we're using a bit of a clunky structure to try to really address systemic and societal issues of racism and poverty and um, structural racism that have been here, especially in Louisiana, since the beginning of this state. And so I think this, that's why I think the structures piece is so incredibly important because the structures is where these issues came from. And as much as we need to look at the outcomes today for people who have suffered from this and have diabetes today, have high blood pressure today, and what can we do better about their care today, this structures piece is where really we can maybe have some upstream difference. And the other thing, other point I'd just like to make along those lines is that all this really um, depends on context as well. And I, I appreciate the report and in referencing this several times. Right now we're talking about measures to look at Medicaid programs, mm-hmm. how Louisiana can look at itself over time, how we can compare ourselves to other states. But really if we're comparing Medicaid to Medicaid, hopefully we're raising the bar, but are we ever comparing Medicaid to private or Medicaid to Medicare? And are we, and Medicaid to, to TRICARE, VA, like we're we really looking at we're having equitable systems, um, you know, no matter where you're born or your age, you know, your, your life stage, are we really doing a good job there? So I think that, that being able to extend this to see, are we being equitable in our system? Are we being equitable across our state for all citizens? Um, I do want to um, oh, yeah. chime in with, with, with Amanda. I definitely agree with Amanda on everything that she says. One of the um, areas that I noted that was missing from the structures of care, urban and rural status, here in, in Louisiana, that is we've we've identified a disparity there and a need for equity, health equity between urban rural status. And I, I know there's a focus on RELD data and information, and that's outlined here in the two measures that have been identified to be included in the domain. But yeah. I do um, agree with Amanda, this, this, the structures of care, this is an area in, in which we may need to expand 
are you can expand upon um, by incorporating maybe additional measures because if the data source is really member reported data or enrollment data or data that we can pull from other data sources, then I'm, I don't see why there, there are not additional measures that capture the realm of those uh, structural um, barriers. I'm gonna call it structural barriers to care, right? So right. again, in the state of Louisiana, I mean, er, uh, that that's when I first read that, that stood out to me. I'm like, okay, we're gonna assess on race ethnicity even though, you know, most states we are having issues with collection of that data and we're still working to collect uh, to to collect that clean data. We're also, you know, I have a measure around uh, the language aspect of, of the, our, our diversity in language. But we missed out on that urban rule um, disparity or the measure to assess that as well. So I think in the structures of care agreeing with Amanda, I think we still have some work to do there and some improvements to make in this domain. Um, we need to go beyond just language and race ethnicity to ensure to surely ensure health equity. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for raising that, Kalinda. I think the um, that um, has also been a big theme um, in states that are really trying to evaluate, you know, um, who, who needs services and, and access to care and everything that goes with being rural um, is um, a huge factor uh, for, for any of the states that have, you know, uh, wide swaths of, of rural population. And I think that that's a, a lot of states, <laughs> um, uh, certainly from, from all of the um, feedback that we hear about the, the challenges of um, prioritizing resources and how you support people when, um, uh, in the delivery of care. You know, our our intent with this was was to familiarize our listeners with the with the framework, uh, to hear your perspectives. Uh, I would love to get your um, kind of two cents on what a call to action would be for other states. Um, I don't know if you've been talking with other states um, about this, uh, you know, but I would love to hear your thoughts about how to how what what you would tell your state partners about this. So what I would tell my state partners about the NCQA Advancing Health Equity Framework is first, I would tell them, please read the document because I think it's very informative and does lay out guiding principles for starting your health equity program. It does lay, it does lay out a framework that consists of those six domains in which we could pull. I will also tell other states that you're probably already reporting many of the measures that are included in those domains to go back and review and research and 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 just make sure that you know if you're not you if you're not reporting um maybe you should consider reporting a lot of those measures that's, that's incorporated because i think really many states are um Again, I have a program or a strategy set up to identify dis disparities. So if you're not stratifying your data, you should start stratifying your data by some method. Um, again, the state of Louisiana, we're currently stratifying by race, ethnicity, and urban rural status. And then that will lead to clear interventions and strategies to address those disparities or to advance health equity. I would say to 
and just collaborate with your internal and external um, entities like uh, your partners to remove those barriers of care. I mentioned uh, to you early on in the podcast that we collaborate often with our uh, with office with, with the Louisiana Department of Health Office of Public Health. We collaborate th- with them on numerous initiatives and identifying strategies on how we can remove those barriers. Also, I think this framework, I would tell them, um, would support the need to address those health-related social needs, right? Um, that framework could help them come up with strategies or uh, help support some of, the, some of the initiatives they have around health-related social needs. Um, I also think the framework for, for me would help me or help other states to engage their executive leadership teams. Um, If you already do not have a health equity strategy or initiatives around health equity, this framework will help you engage your executive leadership to assist you with implementing uh, strategies that, that are needed to address health equity. It does promote accountability and transparency. Also, it will assist you in one of the areas that we would need to improve on as the state of Louisiana to engage in rollies, right, in other stakeholders such as community-based organizations. You know, we, we do a very, very good job of engaging MCOs, sister agencies, but I think we have areas to improve and engage in our enrollees um, on their quality of care, as well as community-based organizations and other stakeholders external to LDH. Thank you, Kalinda. Um, I think that there's a, a significant opportunity for states as a whole to be looking at equity. Amanda, you raised that point about this needs to go beyond Medicaid. Um, and I think the example that Kalinda highlighted with Collaboration with public health, definitely. Um, but I think it's a, it's states really have an opportunity to um, engage those that are both the kind of all of the purchasers for the state and the regulators to kind of come together on a vision for what equity means for their state. And I think that, you know, that's certainly something we believe um, states should do. Um, and they're, everyone's in a different place at this point, but you have to start somewhere. And so I just wanted to recognize your vision for that, Amanda, your support for that, Kalinda, and then I'll give Amanda an uh, opportunity for closing remarks. I think what, Kalinda, you said about bringing this framework to your executive leadership is huge. Those folks are busy. They are busy. They're getting it from every direction. I mean, we're all very busy, but really being able to hand somebody this framework just really condenses a a very complex issue in a way that they can easily digest and communicate it when they go to the governor or they go to the legislator and, uh, and, and continue to spread this, um, this message. I think the other thing that, that Clinton was getting to, but I might condense a little bit more is to say to put your values in your contracts so that whether it's with your MCOs or, um, or other organizations, like bring that piece there have it all over the place. Um, it's, the more you incorporate equity language, the more you incorporate health equity goals and, um, and stratified data, et cetera, the more you're going to make that expected and, and normalized and uh, everyone's going to be on board. 
And then the last piece that Clinda had brought up was just collaboration. Collaboration is key. None of us have all the answers or know or have all the information. And so keeping those open dialogues with your other agencies and the Office of Public Health is huge. The community-based organizations, like Clinda was saying, your MCOs, of course, we talk about monitoring and holding them accountable. That's our role, of course, but they're also collaborators with us. And so working with our MCOs around some of these ideas is also very important. So I'd like to follow up on that point Amanda made around supporting providers and like what what is uh, Louisiana uh, doing that that provides that kind of support and reinforces the priorities around health equity? Kalinda? So I would say our value-based payment program, what we noticed from um, last year, we've actually amended our contract to ensure that the providers are whole. Two provisions that we included is that the MCO cannot hold a provider to a higher standard than what the state hold the MCO to. Meaning if we're requiring them to meet the NCQA 50th percentile, they can't make the providers meet a 75th percentile or higher. And then in addition to that, we also stated, we put a tiered system into our value-based payment program that you must incorporate at least two incentivized measures into your value-based payment arrangements with providers. And you must incentivize them at this level, right? So we have specific language in our value-based payment arrangements. So therefore, because what we saw prior in our value-based payment arrangements is that they reported, the MCOs reported these huge value-based payment arrangements and how much they were investing. But when we saw the provider incentives, it was minimal. Some Mm -hmm. of them were less than 1%. So therefore, we were like, no, if you're reporting these huge amounts of, of, of value-based payments, then you must incentivize providers as well. And so we put those provisions into our value-based payment contracts, uh, the performance metrics that they must report on, requiring them to tie their value-based payment arrangements to quality. They must provide uh, uh, t- uh, link them to quality of care, but also uh, providing those, uh, those incentives to providers and requiring them to increase incentives to providers for participating in value-based payment programs. Christine Toppy, Assistant Vice President for State Affairs at NCQA, leading an insightful discussion with Kalinda Parker, Medicaid Deputy Director for Louisiana Department of Health, and Amanda Dumas, Chief Medicaid Officer for the Louisiana Department of Health. Again, for the full interview, download and listen to the bonus episode, which you should find in your feed alongside this one. The report they discussed should be linked in these episodes' descriptions. And for more about NCQA's efforts to improve health equity in our nation, go to ncqa.org, look down on the screen, and you'll see a link to our health equity system in the center of your screen. It's right next to an icon for the scales of justice. To introduce our next interview, we'll give the lowdown on our new four-day live Fall Health Innovation Summit, I'm going to read something from our website. It's written better than anything that I could write. Under the heading, Become a Sponsor, here's what the website says. Each year, NCQA identifies priorities and starts programs designed to improve patient safety and health. To implement these programs, NCQA seeks support from corporations and foundations that share our goals. As a not-for-profit organization, we rely on the support to advance our mission. 
contributing, whether through a sponsorship or through a general donation, sends a powerful message that an organization supports healthcare quality and value. So contact Harry Alba, Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations, to learn more. And that's why you might have heard of his name. Basically, if you've gone to a healthcare convention somewhere in the U.S. and you've met someone from NCQA, there's a pretty good chance it was Harry Alba. You'll know it when you hear him talking up our newest premier event, the Health Innovation Summit. Harry Alba, thank you for joining us here at Inside Healthcare. Thanks for having me, David. So we are here to ask you to mine your mind for information about the upcoming summit. So when you think about the summit, what's the, the first thing that comes to mind about the, uh, the Health Innovation Summit? An exciting gathering of folks who haven't really had much of an opportunity in the last two years due to COVID and the enthusiasm that we're seeing from sponsors who are excited to exhibit. So what are you most looking forward to? Is there anything specific that you're looking forward to for the summit? Sure. Uh, for the first time in NCQA's history, our 32-year history, um, we are bringing together health plans and provider organizations, uh, mostly large integrated delivery networks, uh, to one conference for four days together. And the the opportunity to bring them together presents great networking opportunities, opportunities to do business uh, with organizations that you previously may have not had a chance to meet. And really, it's just a chance to make the most of four days together with NCQA's leadership. So I know we're going to have an exhibit hall, and I know you're going to tell me more, more about it. I know it's not called the exhibit hall. Tell yeah, us the about pavilion. it. Okay. All right, so so um, we're very excited about the NCQA Pavilion, um, and this is going to be, think of it as a town hall that's got more than 50 companies that are leading digital companies in healthcare focused on quality who are going to be available throughout four days to meet with and talk to the leaders behind those companies and to showcase their solutions that uh, enable companies to achieve the highest possible quality scores and to do the best job for their patients. So we're excited about this. In the middle of the hall is going to be something called the NCQA hub. What's, what's interesting about that is we're going to have something called a digital innovation theater. And throughout the uh, exhibit hall hours, which are available on ncqasummit.com, you're going to hear from up to three companies an hour where their founders and C-level executives are going to be explaining what their company does and demonstrating how that may be of, of value to the attendees. There are going to be amazing speakers who are going to be at the event. So tell us about uh, who people will be able to see and be able to hear from, uh, be able to meet, uh, even you know, maybe grab for a coffee or uh, just to network? NCQA has been curating for the last 12 months some of the best and brightest executives in healthcare. They come from government agencies, from large health plans, from large integrated delivery networks and health systems, and also from companies that are just leading technology companies. Um, one person that I'll mention is Alexandra Drain. Uh, she's a fascinating speaker and always makes it fun. Uh, we also have Abner Mason from a company called Same Sky. So these are these are companies that are 
disrupting healthcare in a good way. These are companies that are breaking the mold in some cases. And frankly, they're leading organizations where you really um, don't have that many opportunities to meet with those people. The nice thing about our event is that it's designed for networking. So you not only get to hear from these people, but you might get a chance to chat up with them and see where you might find some common ground for you to do business with those organizations. We will have networking receptions, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evening. So not only are you coming out of sessions where you're learning and being inspired, but you're able to also network with over a thousand folks who are going to be there over cocktails and be able to mingle and learn about what's new and innovative in healthcare. This is clearly the future of healthcare quality and CQA is at the center of it, but we rely on hundreds of organizations to also uh, accomplish what, what has to get done. So those companies will be there and they're some of the leading companies in healthcare. So it's a big difference between, you know, two, two and a half years of people only be able to talk over the computers. We're having a four day in-person summit. Uh, so the dynamics are entirely different and the advantages are, are entirely different. I mean, ha, ha, what's, what's the feeling going to be like of being able to be there uh, and, and just simply be able to sit and talk to somebody in person, being able to, to spend time? Well, if you haven't been to the Marriott Marquis in Washington, D.C., uh, you're in for a treat. It's a state-of-the-art facility. It's the largest hotel for conferences in Washington. And it is essentially uh, the one of the ultimate places to uh, be able to spend four days and take advantage of the amenities that Washington has to offer. So it's in the heart of uh, certainly lots of arts and culture and dining and things to see and do when you're not in sessions. And it also is an exciting place to be in the fall. So uh, we have more than 11, 1,200 people we expect. And um, this event has been a success from really when we launched it. Most people that we're talking to have been looking forward to getting out and meeting. And now that, uh, you know, most companies are able to travel and to, and to do business development and to, and, and to work on new initiatives in person, uh, this event is, um, is tracking to be a sellout. This is the first annual Health Innovation Summit. It's not the last. It's only the beginning. So, and I know we were talking before uh, about uh, the opportunities that people have for this year. But, uh, you know, a lot of places as of now, they're trying to set their budgets for the next year, uh, two years ahead. Um, especially the larger the company is, the more likely they're, they're doing that. So uh, how should people be considering the summit, not just for this year, but for 2023? What, where should they be? Where are some of them? What have you been hearing about some of these companies in terms of planning for next year's summit already? Well, you know, one of the disappointing things for me was we've had to turn away more than two dozen companies who were interested in exhibiting just based on the limitations of the of the space. So for next year, we're planning on going to a larger venue and have more registration available. So this event is growing. It's exceeded our expectations uh, across the board. So uh, we are preparing right now to be able to not only accommodate the over 50 companies, 55 companies that are sponsoring this event, but to welcome even more sponsors. So if you're planning for 2023, uh, please mark down the NCQA Health Innovation Summit for 2023. We're going to be announcing the location, the venue, and all the information you would need to put together a budget to support it in 2023, but really take advantage of this growing audience. And for right now, for more information, 
Yeah, for more information, uh, the best place is to go to our website that's for the summit. It's ncqasummit.com. You can also visit ncqa.org and go into the education section and get more information on this event, including the full agenda. Uh, one thing I will leave you with is uh, if you're interested in staying at the Marriott Marquis, book your hotel soon uh, because I believe the room block is just about sold out. Harry, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. We're looking forward to the summit. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. There he goes, Harry Alba, NCQA's Director for Corporate and Foundation Relations. We'll have more Inside NCQA interviews in October with more Inside Scoops on our Health Innovation Summit. So don't touch that dial. Time again now for our Fast Facts segment. Each episode, we feed you a little knowledge and NCQA insight to share with anyone you know. It's always a conversation starter. So the month of September in the U.S. is also Pain Awareness Month. There are so many topics to consider here. The difficulties of self-diagnosis, pain as a symptom of whatever else you have, safe ways of pain management, even more so for people with conditions that some call invisible illnesses or invisible disabilities. Sometimes these conditions include living with unavoidable pain that observers walking down the street might not ever realize just from looking at or even talking to those who suffer. This is just one reason why pain awareness is itself crucial in removing stigma and stereotypes from medical treatment and social relationships. I'll include links for a few resources you can explore for more on pain awareness. This includes the U.S. Pain Foundation's campaign, spreading the hashtag life with pain in deference to pain awareness month let's talk about a common ailment lower back pain it's not hard to have a stiff or sore lower back the cdc reports some stats from 2018 that were gathered by the national health interview survey they asked adults 18 years and up if they've had lower back pain in the last three months and nearly a third of everyone said yes more women than men said yes and Numbers overall went up after age 45. Tell me about it. So lower back pain is incredibly common. Of course, any kind of pain can be a sign of something serious. It can be a comorbidity all its own. But with that many people experiencing it, and with symptoms often dissipating on their own without serious medical intervention, NCQA developed a HEDIS measure to make sure patients are given fair treatment. The measure, called Use of Imaging Studies for Low Back Pain, or what we call LBT, assesses adults 18 to 50 with a primary diagnosis of low back pain who did not have an imaging study, like a plain x-ray, an MRI, or a CAT scan, CT scan, within 28 days of the diagnosis. Now, the reason for the measure, for the majority of individuals who experience severe lower back pain, Pain improves within the first two weeks of onset. NCQA researchers found that too many times a clinician will order up some kind of imaging when the symptoms probably don't require going to such diagnostic extremes. So in this measure, a higher score indicates a better performance. The more patients you have that you did not require to get imaging, the better off you were. Evidence shows that unnecessary or routine imaging for low back pain is not associated with improved outcomes. It also exposes patients to unnecessary harms, like 
radiation and further unnecessary treatment, and of course the cost. So avoiding imaging for patients when there's no indication of an underlying condition can prevent unnecessary harm and unintended consequences to patients. And of course, it can reduce healthcare costs, which always seem to rack up pretty high pretty fast. Again, I'll have links for all of these sources and for resources on pain awareness in the description of this episode. If you're in the healthcare realm, you need to come to NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. Period. End of story. If you have ideas for improvements in digital health, remote tech devices, software interoperability, you need to get to D.C. from October 31st to November 3rd. If you're a fan of NCQA and you have some or any involvement with our HEDIS measures or other measures or other products, stop worrying about it. Uh, Stop worrying about calling us 25 times asking questions. Come to D.C. Talk to us in person. NCQA's newest live event brings over a thousand people this year to the Marriott Marquis, D.C. for four days of meet and greets, seminars, networking, and more, rubbing elbows with top minds in healthcare today. And then there's the pavilion floor with exhibit booths and NCQA experts and more chances to find out the latest and greatest in what means the most to you. Go to ncqasummit.com to register and get help planning your trip. From innovative care delivery to breakthrough innovations, it is all about quality this time. The NCQA Health Innovation Summit, from Halloween through November 3rd, our newest and brightest live event. Again, go to ncqasummit.com right now for more information. And now we come to you, loyal Inside Healthcare listener. We want to hear from you, your comments on the show, your thoughts for future show topics, even your ideas for guests. Maybe it's you. We're always looking for input and expression and absolutely welcome your feedback. So drop us a line at communications.ncqa.org. But just to get you going, here's a question to consider and maybe let us know your response. What would be included in an effective, non-legislative process for integrating health equity policy into a state? Have a think. Let it stew. Send us your thoughts to communications.ncqa.org. Because I'm sure you've got something to say. Well, that's all for this edition of NCQA's Inside Healthcare Podcast. Episode 89 is done. But... Not completely, because don't forget to download the bonus episode companion to this episode. And now we've been doing this entire show for nearly five years off and on, so there are plenty of episodes for you to download or to stream. Listen in, spread the word about the show, and again, let us know what you think. But thanks for joining us every other Wednesday for this podcast. For the communications team here at NCQA, the award-winning communications team here. I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.